You're listening to audio from the West End Community Church in McGregor, Manitoba. All right. Morning. It is great to be here with you today. You know, last night, getting ready for this morning, talking with Pastor Meyer, and there was a little bit of uncertainty as to whether or not we would actually be here this morning. The weather uh, network made it sound pretty uh, scary outside. Still waiting for it. Um, Yeah, we we had to have a conversation about anticipating if we would maybe even have to cancel church, ugly weather on the way, and and while I'm always a fan of the moisture that comes with ugly weather, um, I'm glad that we got to be here with you today. I'm glad that it's not that nasty outside. I'm glad we get to worship and spend time together in God's Word. <clears throat> Speaking of things that are ugly, today we're going to be looking at Esther 9. So if you didn't hold your, your spot there, please turn there now. Uh, this is a passage that, if I'm being just terribly honest with you, is kind of hard to preach on. Um, when Pastor Myron said, hey Matt, you get Pastor not, uh, Pat, Esther 9, I... Uh, I was super thankful. He always gives me the easy ones. Um, it's, it's hard to preach on. It's hard to know where to go with a passage that is filled with so much violence uh, and terrible things that we see taking place. But if we're being completely honest with ourselves, the whole book of Esther is kind of that way, isn't it? Um, it's, it's a hard book to preach on, and so we don't see it preached on often because it tends to rub against our more conservative moral nature as the church. We are constantly exposed from page one, verse one, to the things that we try to distance ourselves from as followers of Jesus. We see drunkenness and debauchery, chapter one. We see sexual immorality. We see murder plots and murder actualized. We see death on an incredibly large scale. And it's not the funnest thing to always look at. That being said, we're going to recap all of it this morning to, we, to make sure we know what we're talking about and where we're going. Um, I want to try to, as quickly as possible, do a run-through of the whole book of Esther as we come towards the conclusion here. Chapter 9 and 10 are the wrapping up of all these events that have taken place, <coughs> and so we want to know what's taken place before we speak on it. I'm going to pray quick first, and then I'm going to take a deep breath and dive in, so please try to keep up. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that we can be here today. Again, I just thank you for your word. Um, What an amazing thing to have that we can learn from. Uh, It shapes us, Lord, even in the passages and the places where it seems difficult, where it doesn't make sense, or where you struggle to find application. All of this is your word, Lord, your instruction divinely breathed breathed out for our sake. And so I ask God that we would just open our hearts to it this morning that we would learn, that you would speak through this and it wouldn't just be me or any thoughts that I may have come up with. God, that you would truly show us what your plan and purpose is with Esther chapter 9. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. The book of Esther. The book takes place in a time where exiles had been taken into Babylon, now usurped and taken over by Persia. Right? We're In this point of time, during the book of Esther, starting to see exiles return to Jerusalem, though. That's that's what's taken place. So even though there are exiles returning to Jerusalem, the temple and the walls of the city are being rebuilt. 
rebuilt, there is still an enormous population of Jews living in slaves in land that isn't their own. Okay? And our story begins in that land, not their own, in Susa, which is the Persian capital. And we enter Susa in a, a rager of a party. King Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, as we've referred to him uh, a lot throughout this, he's the same guy, different interpretations of the same name, same guy. I'm probably going to say Xerxes more because I'm going to stumble, stumble over Ahasuerus. I can't even say stumble. So bear with me as I say Xerxes this morning. Xerxes is throwing this crazy party in a drunken stupor. He demands that his wife, Queen Vashti, come and entertain his guests. Whatever that might mean, we don't know. It's probably not great. He just wants to show her off. And so she denies him. He gets mad and deposes her. Not only does he depose her, he gets rid of her. Kind of sketchy. She just disappears out of the story. And then King Xerxes basically holds a beauty pageant to find a replacement queen. Enter into the story Esther and her cousin Mordecai. Now Esther is among those that would have been called to this beauty pageant. She was a young, beautiful virgin living within the land, and all of these young virgins were brought before the king. They were beautied up and then marched before him, and then the king would choose from amongst those marched before him a group of women that he would spend the night with. Gross. I told you it's an ugly story. It's dark and uncomfortable. And after spending the night with all these women, he would pick one to be his queen. Those who weren't chosen would have to live with Alice Walls as concubines for the rest of their lives, not able to be married or have children. Not a fun place or fun context where we find this story taking place. But Esther is the one of among all these countless virgins that are brought forward that is chosen by the, the king to be the next queen of the Persian Empire. Now Mordecai, caring for his family as you would, would always gate of the palace in the midst of, of everything that's happening to keep tabs on Esther, see how she's doing, talk with her. And Mordecai, in his time spent at the gate, uncovers an assassination plot against the king. He takes this information to Esther, king, the king's life is saved, Mordecai is praised. Okay, life goes on. As life is going on and all these things are taking place, there's another character we need to be aware of who is very pivotal to this story, the bad guy Haman. Right. Haman, the Agagite, that is actually really important. Keep note of that. Haman, the Agagite, is the right-hand man of the king, <clears throat> and Haman hates Mordecai, does not like the guy. He hates him because he thinks he's pretty hot stuff. In the eyes of all those around him, he's a man of great importance, and yet Mordecai is the one man who will not bow to him and show him the reverence he believes he's due. And so he schemes up a plot to get rid of Mordecai. And discovering that Mordecai is one of the many Jews living in exile in the Persian kingdom, because of his hate for him, is so extreme, he coerces the king to issue a decree, an edict, that on the 13th day of the 12th month of Adar, it would be permissible to kill, eradicate, all of the Jewish people living in Persia. The king is very easily coerced into this, and long story short, this edict is put in place. Now, one night, the king trying to sleep, and he can't sleep, so he asks for a very boring book to be read to him to put him to sleep. I can only assume that's his intention, because I know when I can't sleep, I don't go to like, I don't go to like an action story to try to put me to bed. That's going to like get my mind going. He asks for the book of Chronicles. If you ever can't sleep, I don't want to tell you to read the Bible and to put yourself to sleep. I'm not going to do that. Sorry. Backing up on that statement. Don't read Chronicles to go to sleep or Numbers. 
Um, the king can't sleep. He asks for the book of the Chronicles to be read to him. And he's reminded, as this book is being read, what Mordecai did for him. And he asks, have we honored this man? And so he pursues uh, honoring Mordecai, and much to the chagrin of Haman, uh, Mordecai is honored in an extreme way that Haman thought should be for himself. And this stirs up Haman's wrath even more. Mordecai discovers the plot that Haman has to destroy him and all of the Jewish people. And he takes this information to Esther and asks her to intercede on behalf of her people, even though approaching the king, even though she's the queen, without his permission could get her killed. Talk about marriage problems. I think we all know sometimes if your spouse is in a bad mood, give them space, but you don't have to worry about that. Um, Esther, though, faithfully agrees and asks for all the people to fast and pray for her. She goes before the king. The king is pleased with her presence and offers to give her whatever she wants up to half of his kingdom. She asks to host the king and his officials for not one but two feasts, and it is at the second feast where she spills the beans on Haman. She tells the king of her heritage and how this new edict would mean her death and the death of her family. The king is enraged. Some shenanigans take place. Haman is then accused and hanged on a gallows that Haman himself had built for Mordecai. Now, fun little side fact as well. Persian gallows, when we read in the book here and we see how big the gallows was, it's not the medieval gallows you might picture in your mind, like a really, really high beam with a rope hanging from it. Persian gallows was a big old spike that they chucked people on and impaled them. So there's this giant spire of a spike next to Haman's house that he is now executed on. <clears throat> and with Haman's death, not only does Mordecai not have the hatred of this man being breathed down his neck anymore, but he also gets his job. He's raised to a position of great prominence in the kingdom, but the problems aren't over. An edict made by the king cannot be undone, no matter how much you may now disagree with it in hindsight. So regardless of Mordecai's promotion or the king's new knowledge of Esther's heritage, the problem remains that by law, the Hebrew people can be massacred when the 13th day of the 12th month comes. And so a new edict is made, and that brings us to chapter 9. Not bad for time, right? Like, there you go. Read the book of Esther yourselves, please. There's a lot more going on in there than I could touch on this morning. But that's the gist of what's happened to bring us to today. <coughs> now, I didn't just do that to fill time this morning. It's not like I was trying to hit a certain mark <coughs> or I couldn't think of what to say. It's super important for us to recognize what has happened and how we got here in order to recognize something very important that hap happens in chapter 9. There's something that takes place in this chapter that has it taken place throughout the entirety of the book of Esther that is very important for us to latch onto and take home today. So here we go. Chapter 9. Let's see if we can find it. The new edict was made. Chapter 8. Because an edict made by the king cannot be undone, and Haman coerced the king to make this edict to kill the Jews, they needed to come up with a way to counteract this. We can't remove that edict, so what can we do? Well, they make a new edict that the Jewish people can defend themselves against whoever would come to put them to death. That's what happens in this chapter. Chapter 9 deals 
the story of how the people of Israel put to death thousands upon thousands of their enemies who were trying to kill them. And interestingly enough, and again, it's pretty ugly and dark, this book at times, not only could they kill the people who came against them in violence, they could kill their families too. The women and the children, and then once the family was removed, you could plunder their home and take their goods. Now, these people are living as slaves in this, in this empire, right? So this is very not common. It would have been more common or understandable to see an edict come that, say, that says, hey, all of those slaves you have, you can get rid of them if you don't like them. No problem with the law. But now a new law has come out that says, hey, you slaves, defend yourselves. And if you defend yourselves, you get to keep whatever the people who came against you with have. It's a bloody, bloody passage. One that if we were to give ratings to Scripture, I mean, the whole book of Esther, again, would probably land this way. If it hasn't reached an R rating yet, it does now for all the extreme violence that takes place. It's a bloody part of the story because it tells how the people of Israel rose up with the authority of the king behind them to put to death those who were coming to destroy them. It tells how those who had taken the lead in this plan of destruction of the Jewish people were now seeing that plan reversed on them and their own destruction was waiting for them. And beyond that, it tells how the king even gave an additional day to the Jewish people to secure uh, themselves and destroy those who sought to destroy them. This book is crazy. Can you believe how many people, too, here died in the span of two days? The numbers are a bit jarring, <clears throat> especially when you look at it in this light. The Jews were not the aggressors. There was no preemptive strike. There was no door-to-door battle plan. It was people who gathered together and waited and acted purely on self-defense. And that tells us something. Even though Haman is dead, even though word has gone out that the queen is Jewish, the king supports his queen, even though they know of Mordecai's heritage as well, his reputation and new position, it says here in this passage, that news went out throughout all the provinces. Even with all of this knowledge, 800 men in Susa alone died in two days. 75,000 across all of the provinces of Persia. 75,000 people with this knowledge in mind still chose to stand against the Jewish people. Now, these numbers are a bit crazy. Um, Thinking about just 800 men in Susa alone, I was doing some comparables, and if 800 people were to die in the city of Winnipeg over the span of two days, we'd be freaking out. That's a lot of death. And that is only, I did the math, in a city with a population of close to 800,000, less than a tenth of the population dying Less than a tenth of a percent, sorry, of the population dying in one day. Susa was much smaller than 800,000, even though it was the capital of Persia. This is an enormous swath of your city's population. The social structure of your city is completely upended. The political and economic function of the city would have been drastically changed forever as 800 people died in two days. And beyond that, across the provinces, 75,000. That is a large number of people, and it shows us that God always has been and will be hated by those of the world. And those who belong to God, who follow him, 
who belong to him will also be hated for that very reason. Regardless of everything they knew, there was a hatred for these people that led to their downfall. This is a reality that they lived and that we have seen through history up and through and to today. And removing one person, as we see in this text as well, who might be the figurehead of this movement, does not remove the ideal or get rid of the problem. Beth, for Christmas a number of years ago, got me the biography of of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Anybody here ever heard of him? He's fascinating to look into. Big hand in the back from Cody. Very nice. That book is great. Be patient with it because the early, like the first half is a lot of his early days. And like when Dietrich was a boy, they loved going to the cabin and he liked to swim. And it's kind of arduous to get through. But when you get there, it's a fascinating story. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor who lived through the horrors of Nazi Germany. He worked with the church to combat the movement of of the Reich within the nation. He also worked with underground movements who sought to usurp or get rid of Hitler and the Nazi party. And he's a man, though, who famously was known for understanding that just getting rid of Hitler wouldn't solve anything. Assassination attempts were being planned and brought forward, and Bonhoeffer often would say it's not enough to get rid of one man. The ideology is the problem that we are facing today. He knew that even if Hitler was removed, the, the ideology had permeated the society so deeply that there were many who would have stepped into his place in his absence, and the problem would have pers- uh, continued, <coughs> persisted. And the same was true here in Susa. Even though Haman is gone, this man who had this deep-seated hatred for Mordecai and for the Jewish people, even though he's no longer in the picture, this deep-seated anti-Semitism had permeated its way throughout the entirety of the Persian Empire. Whether it started with Haman or whether he was just the figurehead of it, don't know. But we know that even in his absence, this remains a problem. And so the Jewish people are told, defend yourselves. Defend yourselves against those who hate you. But the purpose of this story and why I'm standing in front of you today isn't, you know, to glorify killing. It's not a very common sermon topic. I'm sure shooting not telling you to go and destroy the people who don't like you or agree with you or might argue with you. I'm not saying that at all either. God says judgment is mine and vengeance is mine, sorry. Uh, I'm also not saying that everyone who disagrees with you is trying to kill you. Those aren't the lessons we take from Esther chapter 9. If we do, yikes, we're in trouble. This book isn't even about anti-Semitism. What we learn from this chapter and from the book as a whole, as chapter 9 begins the process of putting a bow on things, is some simple, potentially overlooked words in verse 1. You look at verse 1 of chapter 9 with me again. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. And on this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. Here it is. But now the tables were turned, and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The tables were turned. When I was studying this passage, I could hardly find a single author, pastor, expositor, teacher of any kind who didn't title their message about chapter 9 with these words. The tables have turned. Oh, how the tables have turned. The God of turning tables. This is 
what everyone talks about with this. But I found one person who said it differently, and I really liked how he said it because I think it hits the heart of these words a little more effectively. It's from Dr. Tony Evans, and he referred to this as divine reversal. That's what we see take place in chapter 9. And it's something we see take place throughout the entirety of the book of Esther. One of the great lessons we learn about our great God from this great book is that he is, in fact, a God of tables turned, a God of divine reversal. He is able, suddenly, unexpectedly, and completely to change a situation of oppression and utter despair into a situation of favor and overwhelming joy for his people. He's able to bring the wickedness of the ungodly people upon their own heads and set his people in positions of honor, authority, and prosperity. And we see it throughout Scripture. It's a quality of our great God that should cause us every day, when we think about it, to humbly bow our heads and stand in awe of him and place our trust in his providential grace no matter what kind of situation we might find ourselves in. And so let's take a look at these passages, uh, this, this passage um, a little more closely and see the different ways that God is able to turn the tables or divinely reverse the events that have taken place here in Persia. We see a couple things. In looking at God as a God of divine reversal, we see divine reversal in that those who had been and were intended to be victims have now become the victors. Right? We remember the decrees made by Haman, the, the counter-decrees made by Esther, and now the day is here for them to be enacted. Right? Verse 1, on the 13th day of the 12th month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. But the victory that they had hoped for, the overpowering that they had hoped for, did not happen because the tables were turned. As it says, this is a day of victory for those who had been destined to become victims. And only God could do that, right? We've talked often throughout the book of Esther how God isn't mentioned by name throughout the entirety of the book, but we see him constantly moving in the background, influencing the events of this book as we see in our own lives. We don't necessarily hear a booming voice from heaven, but we know that God is moving and working and acting here and now for the benefit of his people. And so we see God here helping the victims, the Hebrew people, become the victors. And we know that this is in the nature of God to do, not necessarily just in this instance, because we see it throughout the entirety of Scripture. When, when I think of this idea, when I think of the victim becoming the victor, when I think of this divine reversal, my mind was immediately drawn to 1 John chapter 5. You can turn there if you want, but I'm going to read it for you just real quickly. 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5 say, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So as great a victory as the Jewish people have over their enemies living in Persia, we know and see throughout the entirety of Scripture that this is in God's nature as he guarantees that those who are in Christ are destined to be the greatest victors of all. They overcome the world by faith in Jesus. Sorrow turns to joy. Defeat turns to victory. 
death turns to life. We also see divine reversal here in the destruction of those who were the destroyers or meant to be the destroyers. Verses 5 to 10. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed, here's the names again, Parshandatha, Dalphin, Asphatha, Paratha, Adalia, Eridatha, Parmashta, Arisai, Aridai, and Visatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha. Oh, almost got there. Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. (coughs) In the citadel of the capital city, Haman's base of operations, where the start of his plans were to be enacted, we see the beginning of Israel's defense. Right? The location that would have been the beginning of their downfall is now where we see their defense enacted first. And among those who were destroyed in this opening conflict, we see Haman's family destroyed in their entirety. But important to note, they took no plunder from them even though the edict said that they could. Destruction of the whole family, take the plunder, right? The brain trust of Haman's operation, those who would have been, who would have had even more hatred for the Jews than others who rose up, right? You could only assume because they just saw the Jewish people be the cause of their father's execution. So this deep-seated hatred that would have been handed down to them is now amplified by this event that has taken place. And they attack the Jews with extreme prejudice and motivation. And yet God grants them the victory. There is something so important and very cool to note about this victory. I noted it earlier when I was talking about Haman. Haman, in the book of Esther, is referred to as who? Haman the Agagite. Does that sound familiar? It should. What's an Agagite? Who is Agag? It sounds funny the more I say the word. It doesn't sound like a real word. 1 Samuel 15. King Saul is commanded by God to wipe out the Amalekites for the harshness that they had enacted on the Hebrew people. What does King Saul do if we know the story? He's told, kill them all. Don't take any plunder. Destroy their possessions. Leave nothing left of the Amalekites. Saul goes and conquers the Amalekites, but he doesn't destroy them all. He takes slaves and captives. He keeps the best of their goods and their livestock, and he does not kill their king, whose name is Agag. Haman came from the line and lineage of this king that God had commanded the destruction of long before this book takes place. And so now, again, we see God's providential hand at work. We see divine reversal and where God had said, destroy them all lest you be consumed by their sinful ways. And that happens with Israel, leading to the train of events that would lead to their eventual punishment and being taken into Babylon and Persia. We now see a fulfillment of those things The tables are turned as those who God asked them to destroy usurped Israel, and now Israel is in a position to get rid of them in the way that they were told to from the beginning. 
the line of Agag here, Haman's whole family destroyed in its entirety, and not a bit of the plunder was touched. God's plan enacted to its completion that he wanted from the beginning, here and now. I thought that was really cool when I looked at that. It's a, there's a reason that it points out specifically the sons of Haman, their death and what was done with them afterwards. And so we see when we look at that, that God's plan cannot be stopped by human intervention or any other type of intervention for that matter, <clears throat> that his cleansing will will be fulfilled and the endurance of those who are his for the purposes of his plan will be kept and held by him forever as well. Right? The victors became the victims. The victims, the table turned and they became the victor. We see another area of reversal when we see the established security of those, um, of those who had been insecure. Let me say that again and hopefully it makes sense. Those who had lived a life of insecurity and uncertainty now had their security established in this event. We see that in verse 3 and in verses 11 to 16. Verse 3, And all the nobles of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the king's administrators helped the Jews because they fear, feared Mordecai. Mordecai had seized them. Sorry. And in verses 11 to 16, the number of those slain in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. And the king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? <coughs> now what is your petition? I will give to you whatever is your request. And if it pleases the king, Esther answers, let us carry out this day's edict again tomorrow and have Haman's sons hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded that it be done, and an edict was issued in Susa, and they hanged the ten sons of Haman. And the Jews in Susa came together on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa three hundred more men, and they did not lay their hands on the plunder once again. Meanwhile, wait, no, I got to read that, yeah. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies, and they killed 75,000 of them but did not lay their hands on the plunder. Security for those who had lived a life of being insecure constantly. The Hebrew people were told, you may defend yourselves, but not only are they able to defend themselves, they have people come to their aid. And not just any people, people of great prominence within the empire. The nobles the satraps, right? The governors, the king's administrators, men who would have had numerous men under their command that they could call upon, now standing with the unified Jewish people to defend themselves. I don't know about you. I don't know if anyone here has ever been in a fight before. Some of you maybe have. You feel a little more comfortable if you have more people standing behind you. There's an added level of security walking through the scary areas of the city if you're in a big group as opposed to by yourself. You feel safe. You feel secure. You have that idea around you that nobody can touch us because look at who is here with us. So that takes place. They have that support behind them. And not only do they have that support behind them, they're given an extra day. Defend yourselves again tomorrow. Now, I don't believe that this was a passion-driven act of revenge by Esther to ask for another day. 
I do believe it was a careful campaign to secure the defense of the Jewish people. Even though the edict initially given by Haman was for one day of destruction of the Jewish people, and we know the Jewish people acted in self-defense, we see destruction being brought upon them again. And they are able to defend themselves. 75,000 deaths. 75,000 people over the course of two days coming against them. It's a staggering number of people. But far less, far less than the number of deaths that the enemies of the Jews had intended for them. And so even though we're not told specifically since the king and the leaders and the people of the Persian Empire were rejoicing over this turn of events, I, I, you can only suspect that the people who were killed were primarily among the Amalekites, among the Agagites, who would have had that historic tie to the Jewish people. We see so many within Persia stand with the Hebrews, and yet there is this deep-seated you know, hatred that exists elsewhere in the people of Haman. The people that long ago King Saul had disobediently failed to put to death by the command of God, and now, in them being able to enact self-defense on a second day, that command of God is taken to its fullest extent and completed. It goes to show that even with an edict from the king, the hatred that was for God's people was so great that people would act outside of it. And so by Esther's word... By God's divine intervention, his people are secured in this land, not their own. Finally, the last thing uh, I want to look at is suffering turning into celebration. The last great act of divine reversal in Persia is this. Verse 17. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made it a day of feasting and of joy. This story started with a party in the king's palace, a party that was about look at me and what I have and who I am and how great my queen is, and it finishes with a party of thanksgiving and of joy in the endurance of God's people. Thanksgiving and rest. What a cool picture of reversal that God has enacted here. Taking the enemy's strength and turning it on him completely. Is this not the God that we've seen at work throughout the entirety of the book of Esther? Right? We see a king's wrath towards his wife be turned into an absolute joy in his wife, which leads to her favor being held by the king to influence future events. We see Haman's joy turn to grief, his pride turn to humiliation. We see Mordecai go from humble and oppressed to a man greatly praised. And we see God's people living in affliction, now rejoicing and feasting. Going from conquered to conquerors. And it speaks this to us in a way that should, it should speak to us today, here and now, very profoundly. We've been pointing to, throughout this series, God's absence and being mentioned, but not the absence of his presence. 
God is present in all of Scripture, all of it, because all of Scripture shares and speaks of the same continuous narrative, this narrative thread that runs from start to finish in this book. And what is that narrative? God's redemptive plan for his creation. And who is the focus or the center point of that plan? Sunday school answer. Jesus. Jesus and God's plan of redemption is present and evident throughout the entirety of Scripture, and you don't have to bend it or twist it to find it. He is foretold, he is foreshadowed, he is foreseen, and God's people are sustained that he might come from them. Throughout the whole of the Old Testament, we see this picture of the gospel on its way. So when we see God as a God of divine reversal, and we recognize Esther as part of that narrative thread, we start to see the bigger picture. A a people held captive by an unbeatable, unstoppable force. Ringing bells. Someone, royalty at that, sent to intercede for the people to save them from assured destruction. And that enemy eventually being hung up on a big piece of wood. And lastly, help that would be sent out to them to stand in opposition to the enemy after that point of intercession. What an incredibly beautiful picture of the gospel, right? The Son of God Most High interceding on behalf of you and me to save us from the undefeatable, unbeatable enemy that is sin. He took that sin and hung it on a cross for you and for me and then gave us a new covenant in his blood that came with the gift of the Holy Spirit that we might stand against those, the sin, the things of this world that would oppress us and hurt us. So what do we take home from a day like today? Simply this. People would look at this idea of divine reversal, sadness to joy, bad to good, And they would hope for the best in this worldly life and existence for themselves. But I can't promise you that. I cannot promise a perfect life for you. I cannot promise that you're going to get everything you want and that bad things won't happen. The characters we read of here show that. They show that life will be marred with hurt and suffering, with opposition and oppression. And even the gifts that we're given that we do get don't remove the hurt and opposition that we will experience inevitably in this life. But what I can promise is that whatever it is that oppresses you, whatever it is that weighs on you, will not have the last say. Because Jesus did at the cross. Our God is a God of divine reversals. He took a slave and made her a queen. He took slavery and oppression and turned it to victory and celebration. And he takes sinners who hated him and turns them into his own pure children who love him. He turns suffering and sadness to joy. He turns hurt into healing. And he does this all when we submit ourselves to his will, his timing, and his plan even if we don't see him clearly. We don't see him clearly stated, but we see him moving. We don't see him clearly or explicitly called upon, but we see him working in and through his people. 
So even if we don't see him today, we sit on the opposite side, the the other side of that gift of salvation, that promise, that through line in Scripture fulfilled. And so today I get to stand in front of you and speak to you as an act of divine reversal. As God took what was dead, me, and made me live. He took what was broken and healed me. He took what was selfish, self-seeking, broken in its very nature, and made it something that was perfectly his. That's who he is as a God of divine reversal. So that's what I want us to remember and take home from today. Just one thing, that one very thing. You are an act of divine reversal if your hope and faith has been placed in him. There is no brokenness that cannot be fixed. There is no hurt that cannot be healed. Because that's who he is. And that is what he has promised for you if you would receive it. Nothing, nothing of this world would have the last say. Because he did. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for today. I thank you for... um, your love so clearly presented in this book. God, even when we don't see your name, we see you moving. We see your love. We see your plan. We see the perseverance of your people for the sake of that plan being fulfilled. For Esther and the Hebrew people, it was the endurance of those people that the Savior, the Messiah, would come from them that we might have faith, that we might have salvation in him. For us, Lord, it is the endurance of your people that the work that you began when you stepped foot on this earth and walked as a man would be continued, that the glory of the Father would be made known, that people would be saved and souls would be turned to you in thanksgiving and in repentance. And so, God, no matter how much we may feel like we are being persecuted, we are being pushed, we are being hurt, overwhelmed, God, you can turn any and all of those things for the glory of your name. Let us have confidence and faith and hope in that, that we might leave this place to serve you well all the days to come in the week ahead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.